Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that, well, you all know everything at this point, right? That has continued to walk across Dante's known universe, except we're not really walking. At this point, we are in the middle of Canto Six of Purgatorio. We have just seen the pilgrim and his guide, Virgil, come across a solitary soul, both solitary physically and solitary emotionally. The narrative, the story, breaks. And suddenly, we're not walking anymore. We have landed in the middle of the rest of Canto Six, which is an invective against Italy and against Florence, an invective that shows us some of Dante's political thinking, some of which is quite troubling. We're going to start out by doing about, oh, about a third of this invective. We're at lines 76 through 105 of Canto Six of Purgatorio. You can find this translation. It's my rough, ooh, I mean rough, English translation, non-poetic translation of the medieval Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off. You can make your own notes. Or even better yet, you can drop comments there. People have been dropping comments lately in that spot on the website, and I really appreciate it. Some of the comments have rather brought me up short and caused me to spend a great deal of time thinking. One person wrote a comment while we were on vacation in New Brunswick, and I honestly spent a good part of an afternoon staring at the ocean at the Bay of Fundy and thinking about that comment. So I very very much appreciate all those interactions there. Thanks for doing it. And otherwise, here we go into the mm, bit troubling invective at the back of Canto Six of Purgatory Outline 76 through 105. Ah, servile Italy, a hostel of sorrows, a ship without a pilot in a great storm, hardly a lady in her domain just a whorehouse. Just at the sweet sound of his city's name, that noble soul, Sordello, was so excited to welcome his fellow citizen Virgil there, the ones alive in your lands are now stuck in a spot with endless warfare. One and another gnaw at each other, even if they're both stationed behind a wall or in a moat. Misery incarnate, search along the shores of your sea, look into your heart to see if there's a single part of you that is happily at peace. What good did it do if Justinian repaired the bridle when the saddle is empty? Without that bridle, at least your shame would be less. Ugh. You people should remain steadfast in your loyalties and let Caesar sit in the saddle if you understood well what God writes to you. Look how nasty this beast has become because it hasn't been governed by spurs ever since you took the reins in your own hands. Oh, German Albert, you abandoned her so that she became untamed and savage. 
You should get up in her stirrups. May a just judgment fall from the stars and onto your blood. May it be so new and clear that your successor will quake in fear of it. Both you and your father were detained by greed in a far-off country and have allowed the Garden of the Empire to become a wasteland. Good grief. I'm thinking of my southern U.S. grandmother who always used to say, he does go on, doesn't he? Yes, well, he does go on, doesn't he, in this passage? He really gets wound up, and we seem to have lost the pilgrim and landed fully in the poet's voice. If you remember in the last passage, we had that interruption, that strange interruption of the poet. Oh, Lombard soul, you look so haughty and disdainful, so full of care and caution. You know that old bit. Now the poet has fully taken over the canto. This can't be the pilgrim speaking. This has to be the poet with a full-on understanding of the Italian landscape with politics all in tow, a very prophetic voice. We might even add for Dante a very mature voice. It is the prophet that the pilgrim is destined to become. Well, in order to look at this passage, I'm going to do a couple things. I want to make sure we understand who Justinian and German Albert are. So let's get that out of the way up front. Then I want to talk a little bit about the metaphors and the similes in this passage because they're complex and they do some odd things over the course of the front part of this invective. Then I want to talk about the argument as a whole. And this is where I'm going to quibble with it and say it's troubling. And finally, at the end, I want to come back to Sordelo because I think Sordelo is sitting behind this invective. So let's get started. I'm far down in the passage. In fact, I am going to start at line 88. So beyond where we actually started this podcast about the bit with Justinian. And let me just read those lines to you. What good did it do if Justinian repaired the bridle when the saddle is empty? So the first thing we know is that there is no emperor, there is no saddled horse that is making sense of Italy. And this mention of Justinian, of course, jumps out for us. Justinian was the emperor of Constantinople. That is what we might say is Byzantium, but I want to talk about that in a minute. He was the emperor there from 527 Common Era to 565 Common Era, and he is the maker of the famous Justinian Code. If you don't know what that is, that was, or is still, 50 volumes on the work of imperial jurists. It's a kind of compilation of imperial laws and juristic thought. It's an enormous collection of laws and the interpretation of those laws. And then beyond that, there is a four-volume work under Justinian's aegis that's a basic elements to the foundations of legal society, plus there's a large coda of the Justinian law system that was written beyond all those volumes. This is a huge piece of work, highly influential in the codification of legal society. But here's the thing I want you to remember. Nobody, and I mean nobody, thought of what we now call Byzantium, as Byzantium. They thought of it as the Roman Empire. 
we in the West have developed a way to talk about Byzantium, which distances it from the now Roman Catholic Church and the Christian tradition of Protestant and Catholic Europe. And we now talk about that over there as Byzantium. No one, even in Dante's day, thought it necessarily so. That is the Roman Empire sitting over there. True, the western part of the Roman Empire may have fallen, but Justinian, without a doubt, was considered a Roman emperor. This leads Dante, the poet, into this larger explanation of Italy without an emperor. Black to the front of that passage. What good did it do if Justinian repaired the bridle when the saddle is empty? Without that bridle, at least your shame would be less. All you people should remain steadfast in your loyalties and let Caesar sit in the saddle. There's the hope of some kind of Roman emperor. If you understood well what God writes to you, probably it's hard to know what exactly is God writing to the people of the Italian peninsula, but we could get that it might be Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, the gospel of Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, where Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. That may be sitting behind this reference. In other words, let Caesar be Caesar. <laughs> let there be an emperor to oversee you passage goes on. Look how nasty this beast has become because it hasn't been governed by spurs. Notice the kind of violence here that is underlying this. Emperors have spurs and you gouge the horse to make it behave. So they've taken the reins in their own hand. There are no imperial spurs and there is no Caesar in the style of Justinian, the great lawgiver. Now, the second person in the passage, the back nine lines of the passage, German Albert. And let me read through these with you. Oh, German Albert. So we've turned away from an ancient figure, Justinian, 527 to 565 Common Era. And we've come up to a fairly recent, well, it's difficult to say, but let's just say for the moment, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. It's difficult. This is difficult, but okay, well, I'll tell you why in a minute. This is Albert I of Austria. Okay, I'll tell you now. The reason it's difficult to say Holy Roman Emperor is because he was actually elected Holy Roman Emperor. Remember the way the Holy Roman Empire worked? There were electors from the various principalities, dukedoms, fiefdoms, kingdoms that made up the Holy Roman Empire mess in Central Europe, and they sent electors. It wasn't quite as formal in Dante's day as it would become, say, in Bach's day, 200, 250 years later. Then the electors are much more formalized, and they give Maria Teresa and others a much more formal vote. But there's still electors, and there's still people elected Holy Roman Emperor in Dante's day. And Albert I of Austria was put in that position. The problem was he was assassinated before he could be coronated. So while he was elected emperor, he was himself never coronated. Now, there's a little bit of a problem here, and it's a little bit of a Dante problem for Dante historically. Albert I of Austria, the elected but never coronated Holy Roman Emperor, 
was a favorite of Pope Boniface VIII. And Boniface VIII is indeed Dante's arch enemy. Here, putting a plea out for German Albert, oh, you know, if you'd only take the reins, Mm, it's interesting because Dante's suddenly moving on to the side of his arch enemy. You know what they say, that what is it, the friend of my enemy is still my friend or something? I mean, Dante's moving in a weird space here because Albert was such the favorite of a pope who Dante despised. Oh, German Albert, you abandoned her so that she became untamed and savage. You should get up in her stirrups. Notice this metaphor, we're going to come back to this, but notice how this metaphor of horse and rider and stirrups and bridles, it's really carrying out, and this is going to mm, give us a little trouble in a minute, but let's go on with it. May a just judgment fall from the stars and onto your blood. May it be so new and clear that your successor oh, will quake in fear of it. The successor of Albert I is Dante's great hope, Henry VII, Holy Roman Emperor from 1308 Common Era to 1313. And you'll notice, this is what's so intriguing, that Henry VII is not named here. Why? Dante the poet is very smart about limiting himself to what he could have known in the year 1300, the alleged fictional year of the journey that the pilgrim is taking. So Albert is not actually gone yet, and his successor is not in place yet. It appears as if it's being written in 1300, even though this is being written at least a decade, a decade and a half after 1300. Dante's smart, keeping the point of view just locked to what he could have known in the year 1300. Henry VII, unfortunately, doesn't get this revelation. <laughs> Unfortunately, Dante's great hope mm, uh, makes a descent to Italy, but doesn't set things right. So it goes on. Both you, Albert, we're back to Albert, both you and your father, that's Rudolph I, who was indeed elected and coronated the Holy Roman Emperor. Both you and your father were detained by greed in a far off country and have allowed, and this is the kicker, allowed the garden of the empire to be a wasteland. You guys are off fighting other battles and you're not taking care of the Italian peninsula and you are the rightful Roman emperors who should be ruling here in Caesar's stead. We have moved from Justinian and the quote-unquote Eastern Roman Empire and over and back to the Holy Roman Empire. While, in fact, I'm going to tell you that I still say Byzantium is the Roman Empire going on until the final fall of Constantinople, in Dante's head, it may have been, but there's now a more legitimate Roman Empire, that is, the German mess called the Holy Roman Empire. And Dante's great hope is that someone will descend from the north and put to rights the strife of the Italian peninsula. Let's talk about the metaphors in this passage. And in order to do this, I'm going to go way back up to the top. Those first three lines are so fascinating. A servile Italy, a hostel of sorrows. There's the first image, the first metaphor. A hostel of sorrows. So we get this idea of a wayside hotel 
of sorrows. And then it instantly shifts. A ship without a pilot in a great storm. There's the first mention of an emperor pilot. But still, we were at hostile. Then we're on a ship in the sea. And then it shifts again. Hardly a lady in her domain. Just a whorehouse. Three different images. In fact, it's a little garbled. It's a little jumbled. I mean, to jump from image to image to image... (laughs) Dare I say this? If Dante were my student, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's so absurd. If Dante were my student in a writing class, I'd be saying to him, hey, buddy, pick a metaphor. Don't jump around like that in your writing. You know, the reader needs to be kind of schooled in a metaphor, and you can't just throw all the metaphors against a wall and see which ones stick. Well, that's kind of what happens here. We get this jumble of metaphors that open, and then it goes on, just at the sweet sound of his city's name, that noble soul, he's talking about Sordello, the isolated poet, was so excited to welcome his fellow citizen, Virgil, there. So this is a different kind of hostelry. This is a different kind of welcome. This is a nice tavern. Hello, an embrace, you know, walk in, have a pint. This is a beautiful contrast to the hostel of sorrows. And it goes on. The ones alive in your lands are now stuck in a spot with endless warfare. One and another gnaw at each other, even if they're both stationed behind a wall or in a moat. Now it's gotten very specific. The strife is so bad that if you and I were in the middle of a battle and we were hidden behind a wall or we were down in a moat, we would actually not be fighting the battle. We'd be instead fighting each other. That's how bad it is. There's a war raging around us and instead we're trying to poke each other's eyes out goes on. Misery incarnate. Search along the shores. Now see that second line? A ship without a pilot in a great storm. Now that second metaphor gets explored. Misery incarnate. Search along the shores of your sea. Look into your heart to see if there is a single part of you that is happily at peace. And then we come out into the horse bridle, saddle, reins metaphor that controls the rest of the passage. I find this actually quite poetically interesting. Start with a jumble of metaphors, explain at least two of them, or develop at least two of them, the hostel of sorrows and the ship, and then find a different metaphor entirely and let it control the rest of the passage. Horses, saddles, reins, bridles, spurs. We start in a jumble and as we move forward, the metaphors condense and then like condensation, (laughs) like titration. How's that? Like titration, they come together perfectly and hold for the back 18 lines of this passage that we're looking at. I believe there's got to be some poetic strategy there. Chaos, settling, and then a kind of concretization of the metaphor or a formalization of a metaphor to hold the discourse. While I'm telling you this, of course, you know what I'm doing. I'm helping myself come to terms with this passage, which I have always thought was so ham-handed. Sordello jumps up, embraces Virgil, and then all of a sudden you get this long diatribe about Italy. And I'm always like, what are you doing, Dante? Come on. Just go back to the story and let's continue on. Let's not break it here. I'm trying to help myself. 
understand that there may be a different kind of poetics at operation here, and I should pay attention to it. So let me pay attention to it one way by quibbling with it, and then another way by being more positive about it. Here's the quibble. This is essentially the argument that goes on in this passage. The argument is there's a constant strife. There's just constant warfare. It's all chaos. Oh, my gosh, how awful. We fight each other even when we're behind a wall together or in a moat. There are good laws that exist. That's the second part of the argument. Justinian made a fantastic code. So it's not for lack of legal reasoning that all this strife is happening. The real problem is there is no emperor. That's the argument. There's constant strife. There are good laws. There is no emperor. This is the heart of Dante's thought. And let me just say, and this is unfair, but let me say, as a person living in the 21st century, this troubles me because chaos (laughs) calls out for an iron fist. When chaos is foregrounded, the human answer seems to be to ask for a strong man. And I mean that gendered because it's got all kinds of patriarchal garbage running around behind it. There's chaos and we need an iron fist to make it right. Listen, we saw this with Hitler. We have seen this developing in the United States. The constant foment of chaos on a daily basis in social media. And I don't just mean that social media is chaos. I mean the constant focus that U.S. cities are falling apart. What this discourse leads to is not better laws, but the call for somebody who's going to come and put the spurs to the horse. Chaos calls for fascism, to put it bluntly. This is very troubling, and it is part of the political argument of this passage. And frankly, I want to distance myself from it. But there are ways that I can also appreciate it. So let me get to that. Remember that Sordello is sitting there like a lion and he's crouched down and he's solitary and all that kind of stuff. Remember all that that goes on? Well, here's the threat. Dante must not become a troubadour with only the preening laments and love complaints of Sordello's poetry and also of Dante's own poetry. Dante could become the troubadour poet like Sordello, and what he could do then is, like Sordello, write lamenting poetry, oh, the fall of great leaders, the fall of kingdoms, oh, for a true love even in the chaos of politics. Dante, in fact, needs to be a different kind of poet. And I believe that Sordello is sitting back behind this as a resonance, an echo of not that. I am not that poet. In fact, I am a more clear-sighted poet, not just lamenting the fall of kingdoms. I'm actually diagnosing it, perhaps not to my Mark's liking, but diagnosing it and, in fact, offering my own absolute 
vitriolic plea that this strife starts. I think that that one of the things that's so interesting here, if we can just go back, is say that one of the ways that we can watch Virgil get kicked in comedy is via the poet. The pilgrim says to Virgil, my liege, my guide, my leader, where shall we go? You know, the pilgrim relies absolutely on Virgil. But the poet who is setting the whole thing up behind the scenes, the poet is the one who is kicking Virgil. And it is the poet who is forcing Virgil to rewrite the Aeneid. It is the poet who is forcing Virgil to confess his errors. It is the poet who's putting Virgil in positions in which he seems to have the answers, but no one pays attention to him. The crowd just wants to talk to the pilgrim. That's the poet. And in fact, if there's any daylight between the pilgrim Dante and the poet Dante, it's found at Virgil. That is the primary source of separation between the pilgrim and the poet. And here's why. Because Dante the poet cannot be a poet in the style of Virgil, an epic poet, and he cannot be a poet in the style of Sordello, a troubadour poet. He has to be a different kind of poet. And now for the confession. This is why I don't like the sixth canto of Purgatorio, because I want Dante to be the poet about the love of Beatrice and the fulfillment of the divine vision. But Dante doesn't necessarily just want to be that. I want Dante to <laughs> to be that. Dante wants to be a different kind of poet, a politically astute, a politically incisive poet who diagnoses the strife, the real legitimate strife of his time, and tries to come to some kind of answer. I may be uncomfortable with that answer, but ultimately what I'm saying is when I don't like the sixth canto of Purgatorio, Dante is not being the poet I want him to be, which is my fault. I need to take Dante as the poet that he is. And the truth of the matter is that he is not just the poet of love. He is also the poet of, uh, shall we say, Jesus cleansing the temple with a whip. And sometimes when it happens, it makes me uncomfortable. And the fault there lies in me not in Dante. My job is to take the poem as I find it, not as I want to find it. A lot to say about this invective. So let's just leave it at what it is right now. It's a complicated bit without a single doubt. It is always complex to see Dante dealing with politics. We'll come back to this in subsequent episodes. And we want to watch how he works this out because here's the shock. He's going to work it out with some irony. And at this moment of rage, you may not expect irony, but it's up in the next episode of Walking with Dante. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, do all those things. You know what to do. Help support this podcast in any way that you can. I really appreciate it. I never intended this to be a what's <laughs> looking like a seven-year project. I never expected this to happen. And yet here it is happening around me, and I'm having a blast. I hope you are too. And I'm having a blast confronting my own expectations as a reader, even in a high medieval poem. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you next time on Walking with Dante.